Yeah, I'm from Northern California. I'm from um, from the East Bay. Oh, cool. Where? At Fremont. End, oh, of the, yeah. end of the Bart line. Yeah. And, you know, I did a little digging up on you beforehand, as you do before yes. you start an interview. You're from Fremont. I did not realize that you were South Asian. Well, also the largest Afghani population outside of Afghanistan. Oh, really? Yeah. Did you know that? No, I just knew that Fremont has, like, the official like Bollywood um, yep. uh, yeah, uh, yeah. movie theater of the Bay Area. It was really interesting to watch that happen too. Cause that, that happened when I was growing up there, you know, it was, there was a, a theater that started off as a first run movie theater and then it turned into, it was really nice for a little while. It was one of those like a dollar 25. Yeah. Um, you know, the movie's been out for several months now. Uh, and then, yeah, yeah. And then, and then turned into that, that indie movie theater. Hey, I like a nice Bollywood movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and lots of place to go. Any movie theater that is also providing you with samosas, I think, is exciting. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting. I mean, this is this is. I was I was going to ask you about this a little bit too because I, um, first of all, I had never heard of the city that you're from. Uh huh. In spite That's of strange. being from Northern California, is that strange? I think most people have heard of Yuba City. Okay. Yeah. What, what is the, what's the claim to fame? Uh, oh well, back in the eighties, uh, Rand McNally declared that we were the worst city in America. Uh, based based on on what criteria? Well, it's a lot of things go into it. High high murder rate. Um, you know, not so large a population. High unemployment rate. Very low education rate. It's always interesting to see like one of those lists will come out and it's like yeah. least educated city in America or something like that. And the Central Valley of California always does interestingly well like the central valley is a fascinating place northern california yeah northern california is a weird was definitely a really weird place in the the late 70s early 80s as far as serial killers are go yeah but you know i you know I, the milpitas is is from is is right around where i'm from which is where the like the river's edge murders happen uh-huh. um obviously the zodiac killer right uh i don't know what it what was going on i don't know what was going on up there well also the weird way that like Baby boomers did all of this extremely complex killing of people. Mm-hmm. And then I feel like the generation since have like yeah. not really put that much energy into it. Do you, do you think they've taken the, the murder energy and applied it to like the Silicon Valley? Is that what happened? Um, I think that that's possible. I think that we've found a number of ways of being creative, but I also think, cause I'll sometimes make the serial killer point and people will be like, no, you just don't hear about it now. And it's like, yeah, no, fuck you. Like, if yeah. dudes are climbing in people's windows or making skin suits, you sure. hear about it. Sure. And you do the really about creative ones you hear about. Right. But they were all essentially born, like, 1950 to 1965. Yeah. Um, and I just think that we are more chill. And I think that we are more comfortable going online and saying, this is the thing that sexually satisfies me or whatever. That's interesting. Yeah, was, uh, that's interesting. I, I hadn't thought of that before, but I, I guess that's right. I guess a lot of that sort of weird energy, like they're able to channel into into yeah. online uh, uh, sub-communities. Which is exciting. I think yeah. the internet, everybody loves being grossed out by stuff on the internet. But all in all, I think it's good for people to huh. be at least honest and like have some transparency. And then you can have people explore stuff, and if they go too far in a direction, there's somebody there to say, "Hey, buddy, calm down." Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I hadn't thought. You know, I'm 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 glad that we're having this conversation right now because I've you know spent the last several years of my life just sort of um, being really disheartened by things that I've seen on the internet, all the terrible stuff out there. But if it's actually, in some sense, you know, potentially saving lives, that's exciting. That's understandable. I mean, we're still just figuring out how to do stuff yeah. with it. It's like, hey, for a long time after the. I was. Comp- it's like the printing press. Like the printing press 
happened and then it changed religion and politics mm-hmm. in Europe. Like it set Europe on fire for 500 years. And I think that that's very exciting. And I think we are now at a point where like the internet is doing something really interestingly yeah. similar and who knows what will happen. But it took a long time before they understood what should get printed and what shouldn't get printed. A lot of fucking pamphlets. That's, that's, that's the thing I've been wondering a lot. Um, you know, I've, I'm 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 a writer. Is is, is the main thing. Weirdly enough, I don't make all my money off of podcasting. Uh-huh. It's shocking for you to hear, but um, you know. So I, I've been writing professionally for for about ten years, and and um, what kind of stuff do you write? Um, blogging. I do some. I, I do a lot of tech stuff. I worked for uh, a site called Engadget for about three years. Cool. And, um, and then like you know pop culture stuff this is boing boing it is kind of stuff around that but uh-huh. but when you know when when i first started doing it 10 12 years ago when i moved out to the city there was this um you know first it, it was it, I, I just felt like it, it was the prestigious thing to to you know obviously to get something in print and that slowly went away right it's um as everything moved towards the internet and there was this feeling for a while there that we were just transitioning towards something but now I wonder if we're actually transitioning towards something or if we're just going to be in a constant state of flux pretty much forever now. Oh, I, I mean, I think we'll develop a culture around it. Yeah. I think that we will... What we have now is a lot, and I think we will evolve to be able to deal with a lot. Um, but I also think we'll develop cultural structures to like hone stuff a little better. Mm. God knows, even Facebook in the past couple of years has gotten better at sort of like understanding what you don't want to see. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, I don't know. I like it's cacophonous, but I like the democratization of ideas. Like I like that more people get to contribute, and yeah, nobody gets to be like the evening newsman telling us what right or wrong is. But also, I was just watching this HBO documentary about Gloria Steinem, and like it was like the the nightly news guy. I forget which one it was, but basically saying. This Ms. Magazine, it'll be over in three issues. What yeah. do they really got to say? Yeah. It was yeah. like, that was our official party line. Like, that yeah. was what America saw. Yeah. I, yeah. It's, it's, I, I go back and forth on, on how important it is to have gatekeepers. Um, you know, I, I'll, uh, for, for God knows whatever reason, you know, I'll, I'll decide that I need to read up on like Gamergate or something today. And like, mm. I don't. I I don't I have no idea how you even wade wade through that you know when 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 everybody when everybody's sort of on an equal level you know in terms of um uh in terms of delivering their message um you know it, it it's hard to sort of it's hard to even kind of know know where to start I still I'm old I still <laughs> don't understand how to wade into yeah a Reddit like I just yeah. like yeah it's just. It's too much. But I also think about the number of things that I said that that's too much about. Like, there was a point in time, because I gave up video games when I was in college. Mm. And then I didn't go back. And and I, like, saw sort of, like, the... I forget which generation it was. But, like, the generations that started having, like, multiple buttons and stuff. Like, yep. the PlayStation, PlayStation and the yeah. PlayStation 2 um, and the first Xbox. And my reaction was... Oh, that is too much. I would never be able to handle yeah. all of those buttons. Yeah. And then I just got a job at G4 and I was like, well, I have to play video games again now. And then it was just like, no, it's fine. Like you just yeah. figure it out. Our minds are flexible. If you just, I get really annoyed by people taking this hardline stance of like, I'm not going to accept new culture Yeah. or I'm, I like the boy bands from my era, but I won't like the boy bands of today. And it's like, what are you really gaining out of that? 
Yeah, I mean, I I I understand. I do understand that. I understand the, the music thing from, from from the standpoint of um, you know, at some point, I think for most people, just it's not worth their time and their energy to go out and sort of seek to seek new things. You know, if you if you've been listening to something and and, and you're happy with it and and you're not necessarily. I mean, I think it's okay that not every single person has necessarily has that kind of intellectual curiosity about everything. I yes, I completely respect that. I when it comes to music, I am just very proud of the fact that, like, as somebody with terrible, very poppy taste in <laughs> music, all of the music that I have ignored along the way has kind of gone away. Mm. But the stuff that I mean, like the stuff I liked in '96 and the still the stuff I liked in 2004, still pretty much around because it was. Terrible earworm songs that we can yep. never really get rid of, and that's a that, that's a that's a feather in your cap. <laughs> I'm really I'm really proud the fact of myself. That it's still annoying people to to this day. Yeah, <laughs> take that, guys who liked I don't know Savage Garden. Yeah. Well, so okay. So what what was what was your jam in 1996? That oh, 1996 we had like um, that was Alanis set. Okay. Um, and she still feels like she's dorky, but we sure. still have her. Um, though I didn't really like her then. I mean, by 97, 98, we had the Spice Girls and I loved them. Uh, and Hanson. 96, I would say, is more Hanson. Okay. Uh, and like, that's not, that's not around, around, but it's still like, if you heard it, you would immediately be like, oh, yes. <laughs> Where I just feel like there was all of this like sublime and all of that stuff that just sort of don't come up or like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Frat frat rock tends to not really stand stand the test of time because they have children and they move yeah. along. Yeah, um, did you make a conscious effort to give up video games? I did. I felt like it was a waste of time. Like I was like, I need to be focused on my studies. And then when I was in law school, I was like, I just don't have time for this. And because I really felt like it was a time sink yeah. because before that I was always, which, which it is, I yes. mean, you know, I, it, it, it will, it, it takes up pretty much all of people's free time. I had been more a PC gamer before that point in time. Um, and it was only after I got a job in video games that I like bought consoles. Yeah. Like since the, the NES, I hadn't had a console and then I went back in for, um, I got a PS2 and an Xbox and then a 360 and a PS3. And then I, did I ever have a Wii? No, I don't think I ever had a Wii. Yeah. Um, but I, then I like left that job and I sort of stuck with it for a while, but my taste in video games has always been a little bit quirky and I really needed, I, I was only able to find the games that were truly appealing to me when I was in a world that that was immersive. Yeah. Like that was when I was immersed in it. And I had these people who were like, you know, professional tastemakers who would also like, like me and know me enough to understand me and to be able to say, Hey, you need to play psychonauts or, you know, you like what was weird was like, you know, finding that one snowboarding game that I think is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and like stuff like that and then eventually there came a point in time when everything they were recommending to me really was just pc stuff but i play on a mac i always wanted to when i worked for g4 i always wanted to do a segment called mac gamer which was just reviews of pc games from seven years ago i yeah i i've i've had a very spotty relationship with with gaming in general um the last console i owned was a super nintendo but oh really um, yeah uh which is again probably weird being 
that uh, the amount of tech that I write. But I, I, I am just not. Do you ever play with anything on on that laptop there? I don't play anything on my on my laptop, and 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 yeah, and I have a, I have a long history with, with the Macs, and that was so so like when I when I got to college, I I was living in a in a suite with uh, like three or four other dudes, uh-huh. and that was our bonding. Is I think it was like Half Life might have been the game, at the yeah, time. and I was the only one with the Mac. Oh, which was. <laughs> That it was basically sucks. like I had both of my legs cut off as yes. I was trying to fight these guys. Um, where'd you go to college? Santa Cruz. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, there, all the terrible hippies went from Berkeley and le- went to Santa Cruz and stayed there. The ones who can afford it. Yeah. It's uh, it's it's another it's another interesting place. You know, it's um, I don't know when the last time we went back, but you know, after uh, the '89 quake, completely completely changed the town. Oh, really? It really did. I spent the turn of the millennium okay. in uh, in Santa Cruz. Like the actual literal turn of the millennium, like New Year's or like New Year's, yeah. yeah. What were you doing in Santa Cruz on New Year's? Um, I was uh, I was in law school at the time, and I had mm-hmm. come back to California because I did it any opportunity. And one of my good friends from college was from Santa Cruz, and like I was friends with her friends, and so we just sort of like had a party at a house. Yeah, it was very chill. We got very drunk and smoked a lot of pot. It's another creepy kind of murdery place. So there is mm-hmm. there is that like I, I think I think it's one of the places one of the few places left where the seventies is very much alive, both in the good and the bad, you know? Yeah. Like, sort of like Charles Manson turned from peaceful hippie into creepy murderer. I mean, having lived in LA for ten years now, there really is that Manson-y crazy yeah. element that we all just accept as mm-hmm. part of like what this place is gonna be because it's so I mean, it is rich with dreams. Like, stuff comes true there. Yeah. And it's magical in that way. And mostly it just leads to, like, these very, very sort of, like, shallow, manipulative people who learn to operate. But then there is sort of, like, this craziness and brokenness that which can predates, be very hard. Yeah, which predates Manson. You know, like, uh, there's all that sort of Hollywood Babylon stuff, too, yeah. right? Like, the, there's something about the silent films. There's that extra level of, of sort of creepy ghost story around that well also the world where we did not know how all of that works how quickly people start moving to hollywood to be part of hollywood and how quickly we start making movies about hollywood is fascinating like you know day of the locust or sunset boulevard these things are really like you're you're talking about this is a super old thing that's now like rotted and decaying and just like just destructive like in the 30s or 50s yeah those are both really really interesting examples of yeah that that turn from you know because i i think right now we're sort of at a point where we see all we see all these like uh we get all these movies about you know filmmaking and acting i mean birdman is a good example of like sort of the healing wonderful magical power of acting but there was that there was that sense for for a while it it would be interesting to, to go back to that of the of the dark side i'm fascinated by we like every 10 years we make a movie about nightlife that wants to show you that it's tempting and full of fun, but it will destroy you and it will make you a whore. And I hate those movies. And I, I kind of get it because you have to give me some examples. Um, uh, 54 Mm -hmm. boogie nights, Saturday night fever. Yeah. 
Um, Roughly all from the same era, too, which is interesting. Yeah. Do we have any from the 80s that are really like, um, you'll get a taste of this? Oh, Magic Mike. Okay. Um, like There was a Scorsese one, too. Um, what was the name of that movie? And Showgirls is... No, Showgirls isn't that. Yeah. Um, but I... What was the Scorsese one? I'm trying to... I, I think it was called um, After Hours, or... I'm not familiar. It's it, it's sort of... It's lost to history. I don't like... I kind of don't like 70s neorealism. Yeah. Uh, we're the all... Gritty, uh, yeah, yeah. We're, we're all supposed to like it so much. Uh, I like the capital F, capital M filmmaking of the 60s a great huh. deal. And I think we started making really, like, injury very interesting things, very smart things in the 60s. And then in the 70s, we had to add this layer, layer of sort of like boring to it. It was like the Ur dogma. Though there were some good dogma movies. Um, and then, you know, Jaws happened and then everything became, what can we blow up? I I don't know. Would, would you loop like, would you loop Taxi Driver? Would you loop those sorts of movies into that? I mean, obviously they're not, they're not dogmen. Obviously there's something happening in those, but. No, absolutely. And, and those are the best of it. I yeah. mean, the thing is, is that there is stuff in there that's really good. And I would say that that stuff even bleeds into 70s Woody Allen a yeah. little bit. Like, yeah. I mean, not all of it, but like Annie Hall, at least I feel Manhattan. has. Yeah. Manhattan's such an interesting thing. Yeah. I have. Let me tell you, I have a personal campaign against people who say that their favorite Woody Allen movie is Manhattan. Oh, okay. yes. <laughs> I just feel like it is such a trite mm. choice of a, oh, I don't like the crowd pleaser Annie Hall. Yeah. Everyone will say Annie Hall. I will say this, and because it is black and white yeah. um, and it has all that Gershwin in it, this will make me seem sophisticated. And like my friend... Megan wrote a thing for Vice that was like, um, oh, well, we know Woody Allen is a pedophile now, but I love I love Manhattan so much. Yeah. It's like, well, that is a movie about him wanting to fuck a child. Sure. Let's accept that that's a movie about sure. him wanting to fuck a child. And like, I fucking love Annie Hall. Annie Hall is just an, an astoundingly funny, creative person who's just firing on all cylinders. There's a fucking animated sequence. At one point in time, he pulls Marshall McLuhan out of the line, and Marshall McLuhan is there and explains his own work. That sh- that shit is on fleek, for lack of a better word. And Manhattan is about a man at the apex of an empire complaining about all of all of the power he has. Here's here's an interesting way of contextualizing Annie Hall that I don't think a lot of people think of, especially if, if you... So so there are several deleted scenes. Uh-huh. Um, this is something I actually only learned about recently. Yeah. Uh, so... I had no idea. So, so, side note, apparently the, the working title for the film was Anadonia. Yeah. You knew that. Yes, the absence of... The inability to feel pleasure. Yeah. Like, sort of like... Really, yeah, really just kind of deep depression. But... There were a lot of really goofy, over-the-top scenes that he pulled. Mm-hmm. There's a scene where, um, I can't remember all the specifics, but there's one where he's like he's playing for the Knicks or something. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's moments like that. But, but I think that that really frames it in an interesting way as far as being a, like the real sort of pivotal film between really slapsticky Woody Allen and re- really comedic Woody Allen. Yeah, I mean... It could have been a very different movie. It's... As it is, it's closer... It, like... 
it's almost Mel Brooksy, and yeah. the, you know, and you think about it in the tradition of the movies he made before that. Those movies were goofy, yeah. um, and then after that, he suddenly is trying to make Ingmar Bergman movies, and some of those are good. Somebody recently talked shit at, um, about Hannah and her sisters at me. Mm. Oh, it was Gabe Liedman, a comedian, <laughs> Gabe Liedman. And I was just like, I can't believe this. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's wonderful and amazing, though certainly not. Um, not not too much a part of that like Scorsese ish like who did who's the guy who did the Return of the Sea Caucus Seven? I mean that's like an obscure movie, yeah. but that's like it's like the Big Chill before the Big Chill, okay. and it was considered one of it was one of those like seventies gritty like this is all done on a budget kind of movies yeah. that that like paved the way for us to to have Taxi Driver and all of that. Yeah, yeah, I think it was before Taxi Driver. I don't know. Yeah, but I mean, I think that, I think that's I think that's why, in a lot of ways, that was his. I mean, because my my favorite Woody Allen movie is uh, is Crimes and Misdemeanors, and I and I think that that skirts the line in an interesting way too. It happens, you know, about a decade later. Why is Crimes and Misdemeanors your favorite Woody Allen movie? I I had a very visceral. Re- I, I I didn't see that. I saw that movie a lot later than I saw his other sort of you know classic movies. Um, I was. I haven't actually even gone gone back and watched it, and I'm a little afraid that if I go back and watch it, maybe I won't have the same reaction. No, I think you're completely right. Like but, crimes, but, and, crimes and misdemeanors is my. I mean, Annie Hall is a thing in, in and of itself, but other than yeah. Annie Hall, crimes and misdemeanors is my favorite Woody Allen. Movie. I remember so 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 like <laughs> so. I, remember, I was watching. I was watching the movie for the first time alone at three in the morning. Uh huh. And the scene where he splices in. Alan Alda with the footage of Mussolini. Uh huh. I lost my shit. Yes. In a way that I, I don't know if I've ever lost my shit to a movie. <laughs> in the way that I did with that one. Like, the, I lost control. Jokes like that are the kind of jokes that I love best, and I feel like they never get respect. And we, I, I don't like where comedy is right now. I feel like we don't mm-hmm. get enough of that stuff. Um, though, what, what, what do you mean when you say that stuff? Uh, jokes that cannot be jokes that would not land at a table read on a studio lot. Jokes that cannot be defended to um, a development executive, like jokes by committee. Well, I just feel like so much now. It is everyone needing to feel like they can defend their job to the person above them and, yeah. and explain it. And the thing is, is that is such a smart, subtle joke that really does require you. I mean, it's Woody Allen. He knows that he'll be able to craft the emotion so that when you see that, it will hit you in the right way. And like, I feel like um, uh, Transparent does that. I feel like Transparent mm-hmm. created so yeah. many moments that were just sort of like exactly the right emotional cacophony that I was laughing at that show. A show that doesn't have that many sort of like jokety joke lines. It does. It has a fair amount and I respect that. Um, But Crimes and Misdemeanors is also just the, like, I remember watching it and I was like a teenager and it just sort of realizing like, oh, this is the Jewiest movie I've ever seen. Like, there are a lot of movies where a character is Jewish or where a person is like, oh, Schindler's List. That's got a lot of Jews in it. Sure. No, I mean the idea... at that time, but they're there. Right. But it's conception of God and it's conception of law and personal culpability. 
was so Jewish that I it was electrifying. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, obviously, there's uh, Judaism is always present in, in in the vast majority of Woody Allen's movies, but um, in a lot of cases, it's hey, look at how Jewish this thing is. Right, it's pointing out the Jewishness of something, and versus it just being sort of a a feeling or just a kind of an overarching idea. And as a gay guy, I think there is that understanding of the difference between like, or just sort of an early awareness of the difference between an object. Cause like when I was 15, I didn't know that I was gay, but understanding the difference between a sensibility that is shared with me or a thing that I know and like sort of just being, an object or a football for a joke or something like that. There was that rare special feeling of like, oh, this per like whoever made this shares a sensibility with me, hmm. um, and you know that's a subtle delicate thing. Yeah, yeah. I keep I keep thinking of that that blind melon video where they open up the gates and there's all the other B girls. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I said that. That's just that's sort of that's become my 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 big analogy for the, the internet right now. Is like every once in a while you'll you'll go down that rabbit hole and you open up that gate and all the other beagle bee girls are dancing around. Well, it's weird because I think I chafe at that so much. Like yeah. I I feel very self conscious about living in a world where we can all agree on they might be giants. Like to me, that is a thing that is like was mine and nobody else. Could, got it because I was just in this shitty little town with these stupid mm-hmm. people. Now, I, like, I don't know because also there are so many people who are wearing nerddom like uh, yeah. like drag queens. Yeah. Um, and t- to me, it's so much a thing of like somebody, I, I don't know, it, when, when people wear it as a badge, I'm uncomfortable with it. So weird because I'm talking about nerddom the way that a lot of gay guys talk about gayness, and I don't talk about gayness that way. Um, but it, it does get me with nerddom. Here's here's <laughs> here's the expression of nerddom that I like when I um, when I the first writing packet I ever did for the yeah. first writing job I ever did. Um, I was like writing these multiple choice questions, and. One of them, I just, it it was for a wrong answer for something about fear. I just put fear as the mind killer. And one of the guys who read it immediately recognizes a line from Dune and was like, this person. And like, when I know that somebody knows or understands a thing that I really, really love, I feel connected to them. Um, But... You're, 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 you know, you're talking about the, you know, this is, this has been the idea with, with punk rock forever, right? The idea of, um, of, of you wanting a band to stay small so that it can just be your, your thing for a while so that you can have that, that little group. So it doesn't, it doesn't belong to the world. Not necessarily. Cause I really like Taylor Swift mm-hmm. and I can agree with everybody on liking to like, but the thing is, is there, I'm only agreeing with 12 year old girls who yeah. I like understand they get it. I, I think it fundamentally just comes down to me sort of so frequently questioning do they get it? Like, do they get it? And also, are they using this instead of a personality, or is this just a thing that they really like? So you brought up they might be giants. I just I interviewed them for the show last. No, week. that's crazy. So they're they're gonna the next episode that's going up, episode one hundred. And I literally talked about what you just talked about oh, with regards to them with them. That's ridiculous. Because this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. As what a, did they say? Well, so so so. Uh, um, this is, everyone's going to hear this. Like this will be the fiftieth time I've talked about this on the show in a row. But this is where my brain's at right now. Um, 
you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about um, about about podcasting and about you know the things that um, podcasting can't offer that radio offers. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, the really the one really big thing that you'll I, I at least at this point no one's been able to recreate. And I don't think anybody will be able to recreate is that. Um, I mean, you probably got this too. You know, growing growing up in a in a in a small town before the internet, of flipping through the radio mm-hmm. and finding something, um, something that you don't know if you're ever going to find again. You know, for yeah, me, yeah. I, I talk I, again. This I talk about this over and over again. For me, it was Art Bell, the the UFO uh-huh. guy. Um, and when I was getting into radio, of, of just discovering that and thinking, you know, because it, it could it could be coming in from Mexico, it could, be, you know, that's how the AM dial worked late at night. Like when all the other stations were powered down, you just got these strange frequencies in from everywhere. And I, I was talking to them, the, them of the Giants, about this because they recently brought back dial a song. Yeah, but you know, it's it's different. It's got to be different. It's through the internet. It's got to be. It, it, it can't it can't really work the same way. What Dial Song was in, in, in its in its first form was just this phone number that you called up, and there's this there, there's this, this. It was literally an answering yeah, machine. Because they got the answering yeah. machine messages, and they were tracks on that yeah. one CD. Yeah, and yeah, and, and there's and there's a there's a, a track on there. Uh, I was talking to uh, uh, Dan Kennedy of the Moth about this because he was looking for this old track. This this old track on I think it's one of their EPs. Of this woman, this old, well, she, you know, probably like in her sixties, and yeah. she's like yelling at her husband really loudly about, "Well, I don't know what this is. I just called this thing, and it was right. just them, like her voice being recorded on there." But, but, but it, it's sort of it, it's a long way of, of saying, like, you know, I think that that's one of the things that we've lost with, with the internet is the idea of really sort of stumbling on something. Um, and maybe never finding it again, and and that was part of the excitement. Like there was there was some excitement when you found something that you really connected with, and this idea that like it might just be your thing. I think so much about so many aspects of my life, and how much I would have treasured these things. Yeah, when I was you know ten or fifteen years old, and it's crazy. And my niece is thirteen, and I, it's weird that she she is in so much more sort of like connected a world but also i think she's stronger for it because she knows that she's not alone and she doesn't feel you know quite so fragile about about stuff like that like i I, you know i felt terribly terribly alone growing up in in that little town and just not being interested in the same thing as the people around me and like uh, my attitude towards the radio really was just a solid. There's not going to be anything on there that's yeah. interesting to me. And my mom, my mom was at a bookstore in Chico, and she heard, uh, she heard a flood playing, and was like, "Guy will like that," and brought it back to me. And I fell in love so hard. And then when we finally got cable, um, I was like, because people at school who had like had cable longer, who like lived more in the city. Uh, would talk about the might be giants yeah. videos. Like once I got into high school, I, yeah, it was like when I when I got into high school, there was one girl who had come from like a bigger high school who knew what who they might be giants were, and was telling me something about a video, and then also like B fifty two's videos. Yeah, and I was which by that point in time were like old, uh, and I desperately wanted to see them, and would just have to like watch, just watch 
MTV and wait or like yeah. watch 120 minutes yeah. and like hope that on this episode they decided to play something quirky instead of just all of the other stuff which was just so fucking dull to me. I was yeah for a while there was really obsessed with with lo- local access. There was a, a local uh, a local TV station out of, out of the Bay Area that would play like punk videos like thing you know mm-hmm. I mean again like this is like I think right before the internet really took off but but just the idea that you could get something that not everybody was necessarily seeing was was an exciting thing to me I mean that's why you know like I've, I've got all these like small press books lying around it's still sort of a it's still sort of a fascination to me this 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 idea of of, of ephemera right oh yeah, um, like that something would be printed in, and available in a local little area yeah. or you went into a bookstore and just what they had there and what was the luck of that. I, I, yeah, it's it's weird. I'll, I mean, taking that back a couple of hundred years to the point where it was just like, you know, what's what are the 300 books in this library yeah. in this monastery? Yeah. And, you know, this thinker who is you know, in this monastery, they're exposed to these things while, you know, 200 miles away, there's all of this other stuff. How does this impact what they get to know, what they get to think about, um, all of that. Uh, the internet is full of ephemera though. Like there is. Yeah. But there is, there's just this notion that, that once something goes up, it's kind of around forever in some form, but still there's so much, uh, you know, there's so much stuff from 1998 that just disappeared. Yeah. Like there's shitty, shitty stuff. And also we don't have hard copies of it. Like once, once that server dies, it just disappears. You know, my blog from 2004 will, you know, it's, uh, it's gone. It's it's strange as you get older thinking about the stuff that has passed, like um, oh, boys I had crushes on, mm-hmm. like right after I came out of the closet on gay dot com. So I only knew their gay dot com handle, but like that was enough to like get by. And I think like one of them I like kind of you know like I'm pretty sure his first name was Mark. But, like, that was all I really needed to get by and sort of, like, have her, like, know this person yeah. in real life. And then just being, like, I-, I wouldn't even know how to, like, f- you know, find him or anything. Like, that dude's out there somewhere. And I can't even, like, Google stalk him because, yeah. um, you know, because that the time of that website has passed. Or, like, somebody I was trying to... There's somebody I knew that I knew on... Oh, it's... Can I tell you a story of ephemera? Please. Okay. So one time I went out in San Francisco in the early 2000s, and there was this, like, super hot guy who walked into the bar, and he was, like, mayor of the bar, and everybody knew him. And I was like, who is this person? And then my friend and I went to this other bar, and he showed up there, and he was in different clothes. And I was like, what's going on? (laughs) And then another him showed up, and I realized that it was identical twins. And so I went up, and I was like, I have to know, like... I was just I opened up a conversation with some sort of like joke or something like that, but I like had to start conversation and figure out what was going on. And they were super hot personal trainer twins, and I friended them on Friendster. And then it was like eight years later, and I was like, "God, I just want to know what's going on with those guys. How will I ever be able to find it?" And then of course Friendster is gone, and all of that. And you assume that these are things that you cannot find, and they are just I don't I barely remember one of their names. Uh, and then I completely fucking found them or like this boy I had a super huge crush on, um, for like a week and a half. And like, I, 
I was like, his name was Billy. That's all I know. And like a week later, he friended me. He, I got a friend request from him on, on Facebook. And it's like stuff like that. I just, I just, it's so satisfying to feel like you have this, this, I mean, that pang, pang nostalgia of like, oh, this thing is past and I will never see it again. Yeah. It's a, it's a double-edged sword because there, there are people that you're kind of glad have just, have just sort of flowed away. You know, God, not yeah. necessarily out of animosity, not necessarily people that you hated, but you know, I've had a few instances on, on the flip side of that where, um, you know, I, I went out with somebody a couple of times and we exchanged emails and now she's just in my G chat forever. Yeah. She's just sort of there. She just, you know what I mean? Like, and, 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 and it's the weird thing of, of, um, seeing somebody's name day in, day out, but you know, never, never taking the step of contacting them. Cause why, why would you do that? Right. And, and, and there's a lot of that, you know, I, something, I, I don't know if it's specific to New York. I don't know how much of it was just my, early 20s I don't know how much of it was alcohol I don't know how much of it was was New York City I suspect it was a little bit of all of that but there seems to just sort of be a lot of that in the city you know around that time of my life of just sort of people just drifting in and out it's so strange when people drift back in after like years and years um it's it's odd but you're but you're but your name you know you're you're out there you're making a name for yourself I mean has that changed that dynamic at all um, honestly, there is just the nice thing of like, I feel like a lot of people that I know see, will like see me somewhere or something like that, that makes them yeah. continue to feel connected. And I kind of, I like that. It makes yeah. me feel nice that I don't have to be doing all of the work of, <laughs> um, of maintaining, uh, relationships in that way. You know, it's, it's strange. It's always the thing of, um, what? because I'm a comic and because I talk about my life a lot, um, there is always the question of like, how will this splash back at someone else? Will this be awkward or weird or difficult? One time I made a joke about a boy and I used an actual guy's name on Chelsea lately and he got really upset and had his law firm threatened to sue us. Um, but mostly it's just my parents hate it. My parents like super, super hate the idea of me at all making jokes about them. And they largely deal with that by in no way paying attention to what I do, which I kind of was like comfortable with. But then they, they got upset about some jokes I made on Twitter, like when I was home. Wait, they don't follow your career because they're worried that they might hear something about themselves? Yes. They're, it makes them very uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and that's, on the one hand, it's like sad and weird. But then on the other hand... I have friends whose parents are like deeply present and deeply aware of what they do. And then they have to sort of like hear about it anytime they talk about their mom or whatever. And I, you know, and it is always like, did you see Mr. Saturday night? Um, that terrible movie from the late eighties or early nineties, but that was all about, Oh, he told jokes about his daughter and they hurt his feeling or they hurt her feelings. Like I would never tell a joke about my niece or anything like that. But how much are you being a dick bag when you take your family's life and sort of put it out there? Like uh, David Sedaris' sister committed suicide. And it's like, what about that? Uh, But my attitude has always been a pretty blithe uh, if they didn't want me talking this way about them. And the thing is, is I I rarely say particularly, I, I don't think I say like, mean or talking shit about them sort of things but I will talk about sort of my my feelings towards my parents sometimes or like 
you know, I have one particular joke about, it is about pop music, but it is also about me coming out to my mom. Mm -hmm. And it is, the the line I say is, um, in 1999, I had a conversation with my mother and then she never loved me as much again. That's just the fucking truth. And if if she would like me to not say that, she should not have been so like devastated by me coming out and she or she should have done something in the intervening years to try to ameliorate that and that hasn't happened so that's my experience in my opinion because i don't because i don't think that you can necessarily divorce those things i was i was going to ask you this but you touched on it a little bit but you know i on, on one end there's there's you you discussing them you know sort of out in the open but that has to be tied really closely to the fact that you're talking about being gay on stage right i think that's really the origin of it like that's really because for my parents there was sort of the twin thing of like them being uncomfortable with me going into an unreliable profession where they thought i was going to be a nice lawyer and make money and live in sacramento um really want to circle back around to that (laughs) okay they were so like they just my mom really really was just always there are Thai restaurants in Sacramento now no it's not gonna happen but I feel like I came out during law school I like barely did stand up a little bit at the end of undergrad but it was sort of like two years after I came out that I or a year and a half um that I started stand up and so like they were away they were I think terrified of hearing me talk about Mm. sex or liking dudes and they were uncomfortable with the notion of me being in front of people talking about this um and so like that anxiety was never addressed but it just meant that they didn't they never saw me do stand up until i was on television hmm. and like i like i did, did it you, how how active of an effort were you making i mean were you te- were you telling them about your things did you want that did you want them to come see you kind of know yeah. because I didn't because when I was still getting my feet under me I was worried about how I would f- knowing that they were sort of like cringing and twisting in the audience what would that do to me on yeah. stage and like I I just I didn't push that much but then like when I was on Chelsea lately I was doing stand up at um, the Warfield which is like yeah. the, the Beatles played there and like I was like, you guys should come to this, and they did, and they were fine. Uh, but like, we did a comedians of Chelsea lately special, and they watched it with the sound off. Like they were just like they wanted to see me because I was on TV, um, but they turned the sound off because they did not want to hear. They were worried about what they might hear. That's that's a very sort of literal. <laughs> I mean, you know of. of uh... It's a sort of very like literal manifestation of how uh, how they feel about that, where they're like, they want to be proud of you, right? <laughs> they, you know, they want to be proud that you got to where you are, but not necessarily saying the things that you've said to get there. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's an it's a nice way of looking at it. I can I can lose touch with things like that. Yeah, I mean it's I mean you know they 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 they're they're happy that you've found some success. I think. Yeah, I mean, maybe not the way that you found it. Us, my parents and I understanding each other is like, it's a long-term hard thing. Yeah. Um, and we certainly don't have it figured out. Yeah. Um, but I, I think a big step that took way too long was sort of me at least 
being able to acknowledge that like that is a problem and they're not going to understand me and I should not expect that of them. Yeah. That you can still continue to have a relationship with them. Yeah. Um, without, cause it's like, because I, I, you know, I hope for that. The thing I most want on the fucking planet is to be in some way understood. I, the, I'm here formally promoting an album. I have a comedy album that's coming out on April 14th. You can find it on Amazon currently, and it should be on iTunes by the time that this, that this comes out, but it is called effable. And it is like the, the joke of the double entendre is both that like comedy is about me trying to prove to attractive gay guys that I'm worthy of having sex with, (laughs) but also me trying to, (laughs) make my thing myself a thing understood through words like that to the extent that i grew up with around people who did not get me i've been trying to sort of like both explain myself to them like so much trying to explain myself to my parents in ways that like just in a very sort of like i went to law school kind of way always being convinced if i could find the right way of phrasing something if i could find the right analogy or comparison that they would like get it Um, but then also the sort of like reaching out and finding other people who got me and that that is so frequently like through words and language and stuff like that. There's, they're not mutually exclusive, but there's a difference between being understood and being liked. Right. Are those sort of one and the same for for you? For me, I don't really... Being liked without being understood yeah. doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Um, is it a valuable liking if a person can't see me? And that's weird and gets weird when it comes to like sexual situations and sort of like the interesting <laughs> the interesting games of like what is a level of liking me that I find acceptable from a dude. It, it's I you know I've, I've been through this. it's it's in a lot of ways it's a bad game to play because I've, I've I've been through this I think everybody's been through this where it's such a silly thing to say like to some not to actually to say to them but um, it's such a silly thing like you like me but you like me for the wrong reasons right where you know I mean it, it what a weird thing or even like you know even to, to carry it out to a song you know that somebody somebody or somebody enjoys this work of art but they like it for the wrong reasons is um, it feels a little a little petty in in a sense. No, no, <laughs> no. I I disagree. Yeah. Um. I think that. I, I mean, if it's a song, but like any anybody can like a song, and there are more right reasons to like Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm-hmm. There are more right reasons to like Bohemian Rhapsody than than some other reasons of liking Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> like, there are guys who are, who are just like, yeah. yes. Like, That's a rocking song. It's awesome. Yeah. It's like, yeah. But also, that song is a gay dude breaking up with his mom mm-hmm. because he wants to go fuck dudes. So, like, um, and that's just my reading. That's just my reading. But, like, <laughs> Somebody having a reading in my look, we cannot be complete relativists in our lives. All right, you have to go through life and you have to have things that you value or don't value. Sure. I'm going to value a liking that is supported by a reading of yeah. of a song more than one that is not supported by a reading of a song. Um, similarly, with a person, you know, like 
it's hard. I all right to be open. Um, like I'm a like I'm a fat weird guy, and I sort of like grew up with a presumption that people who liked me, the only real reason to like me were the right reasons. If that makes any sense. Yeah. And it, now, like now, you're on TV. Yeah, and that's not a good reason to like somebody. Right, and it yeah. took me a while after, yeah. and I live in Los Angeles where people really will be nice to you because. They've seen you on TV. And it took me a while to sort of like understand that and know how to negotiate that. I like the first time I dealt with a guy who was like super, super sexually attracted to me physically. I it was odd for me because I was used to someone messing around with me because they liked me Mm. or because they just because they just wanted to get off. For some reason, I was fine with that. I was fine with like a hookup where we're just both taking care of a thing. But it's because you're a guy. I mean, yes. right? Not not to be too pedantic, but but like there was this guy, and he was like, he was a fat fetishist, and he was super hot. Um, but he was sort of a little like pat me on the head, little ladyish with me. And I was just like, nah, no, that we're not doing that. This is not the dynamic of this situation. And I couldn't deal with it. So, so you just, you know, you, you, you need somebody to like you on every single possible level to really connect with them. I mean, is that terrible and no, unrealistic? No, I, well, it, or... It's not terrible, but but it, it might be unrealistic. Not not because of you, but just in, in general. No, I'm perfectly comfortable with it being unrealistic, no. and that's something I've, I've had to confront. I think it is more just a situation that I don't need somebody to like every aspect of me. Yeah. I think if I were... It is one of the reasons that I've never been in a long-term relationship and will probably never be in a long-term relationship that finding... I would sort of need to find all of those things in one place to make that happen. I have many friends who are interesting and delightful and funny to me and I'm interesting, delightful and funny to them Mm -hmm. and that's great. And then I have dudes I hook up with and that's great. And I don't need those things to be in the same place. And I... And I chafe at living in a world that wants to understand my sexual partner as my primary relationship. Like, I really just, like, it irks me. I realize that for heterosexuals, you guys have to, like, have property to send through a male line and stuff like that. But for me, why is it that the dude what I'm fucking is the person I get to bring as my plus one? I was listening to your uh, interview with Chris Hardwick earlier today. Uh Uh-huh. And... I think you really you, you hit the nail on the head in a way that I don't think I've heard anybody describe it. But you know your your reaction to, to online dating and, and to sort of the stigma toward online dating. Um, I, I believe you you you, you compared yourself to what was it a left handed oyster shucking glove? Was a left handed oyster shucking glove, yeah. which is the thing that I had sort of like said. On, uh, once before that and then I said it on Hardwick show and then I ended up turning it into material so that is on the album which don't think that I did album don't think that I did material like in in conversation if you if anyone buys the album um but yeah I mean it's just I hate when people are we are still at this point where people are comfortable saying towards online interactions that they are not real mm. which I think is a real great way of completely ignoring and yeah. failing to regulate a huge number of interactions that we have in our lives of excusing yourself out of having to have 
personal emotions and, and yeah actually, yeah I mean, like half of people trolling other people and being terrible yeah. to other people is because they're not thinking about the impact yeah. of it. Yeah. I, one time I had this very, very bad interaction on World of Warcraft and like it was upsetting to me and I couldn't talk to anybody about it because everybody was just going to say, that's not a real thing. And honestly, it's not a real thing. Like World of Warcraft was stupid and I was spending all of my time desperately fighting to get objects that don't exist. But that interaction was real and like yeah the internet is f- amazing and to think that people used to get married because they lived near each other because you were the other person in the village who was the right age at the right time it's fucking crazy and like i you know i now have all of these wonderful resources behind me and i still have a terrible time finding anyone i i enjoy spending time around but like you know, uh, I'm a specific thing. Uh, I like that I can sort of like sift through and find people who are a little bit more into this so that nobody's, so that it's feeling like a little bit less of a compromise for everyone involved. Um, I think it is wonderful and so fortunate. We exist in a time when I can just go at any point in time on my computer or on my fucking phone and watch any Lennox's like, uh, duet with david bowie of under pressure from the concert for freddie mercury like that's amazing like it used to be that you just had to catch it when it was on tv and then you could maybe video record it and now it's just always accessible and that's we live in a magical time i find it surprising that you you it sounds like you, you, you you said you haven't really found that many people you you really enjoy Spending time with? No, I I don't mean it like that. I mean sexual partners. What I'm meaning is I have never found my special someone. When you're... You're heterosexual. I've assumed that. You mentioned a girlfriend, right? Uh, I think when you are gay, the extent to which narratives of heterosexual monogamy were internalized by you vary. Some people got a very sort of like oh, I will just do with a boy what should be done with a girl and all of that. But for me, it was some of that stuff. And I do sort of have rom com dreams of like finding some dude, Catherine Hepburn, mm-hmm. with whom I have like that perfect banter and that perfect rapport. And in like a like 40s rom-com is, is what results. Like I I love that idea so much. But also, I'm like, mm, probably not. And I, I have a very happy, functional life with a number of people I really enjoy. And also, like, I grew up in Cuba City and assumed that I would live a life f- full of people who did not enjoy what I enjoyed and who just suffered my presence. And now I live in this world where, like, I spend my days with the most delightful funny people yeah. who have similar sensibilities but different perspectives and it's delightful sometimes sometimes i'll have this experience uh so my friend lewis uh lewis vertel who is uh an entertainment blogger and a very funny guy he was going to be on a game show and so he had sort of like a thing where he got together a bunch of it was just gay guys and all of them except for me had been on jeopardy and we just played trivia games all night long. What a weird minority to be. <laughs> no, exactly. But like, as I was sort of like buzzed and delighted by an evening yeah. of 
being bested at trivia games because there are many ways that I'm a terrible know-it-all, but there is something to me so satisfying to... I understand why people like sports when I'm in a situation where I'm playing trivia with people who are very, very good because I know what it's like to do my best and be bested but still feel good about it, not be angry that I lost, happy that I played such a good game, you know, even if it was a loss. But, like, afterwards, I remember just thinking to myself, it would have been fun to be eight and have friends, you know? <laughs> like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess, I mean, you know, you have to... Um... It's it's some consolation that that for for better or for worse those are the things that kind of that that made us who we are. Absolutely, and the thing is, is like an eight year old can't an eight year old can't go online and find the people who share their interests. You pretty much do just have to hang out with the people at your school yeah. because that's the process of finding people yeah. who have similar interests. I'm just fascinated by all the guys who were just like, yeah, liking the Forty ers yeah, basketball. We'll all agree about all of these things. Why did they all agree? It, it, it's interesting. I mean, you 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 mentioned this before, and and um, I think you said you, that you didn't even know that the, the notion of gay existed until fifteen, which is but that's not true. I mean, okay, here's the thing. Real talk. My mom worked at a flower shop for the faggots, and there were also guys who lived in the um, in the, the like orchard behind us uh-huh. uh they were a pair of doctors who had moved up from the bay area because they wanted to farm almonds um and we also called them the faggots uh so i knew that gay existed but I, it was a terrible thing and it wasn't mm. me and even after my dick started working and only operated in response to men i was like this is a mistake i've just yeah. done something wrong i'm not gay because that's a weird thing that's a bad thing there was no religion involved at all? I mean, there was an overlay of religion. Uh, my mom is Jewish, like nominally. Mm-hmm. Um, because, as, as most of us are. Right. <laughs> um, and But my dad was Southern Baptist. And there was a strong... I mean, like religion is sort of like woven in through there. But it is also just, I think, a deeply yeah. social understanding that that is a bad and wrong thing that I was behaving improperly. Like my parents, how much my parents tried to along, like at every course, turn me away from effeminacy, faggotiness and, and book learning along the Like not really. My mom encouraged. They conflated intellectualism and. Absolutely. Because, because they were practical people who knew the world that they existed in. And to them, Good money is working construction or farming, but mostly construction. Uh, and if guy liking books will end up with him working at a store and making what a woman would make. So I needed to be shoved towards being able to repair trucks and liking doing things outside and that sort of thing because it just didn't cross their mind. Even when I was like in high school they did not think about the possibility of me like going to college and getting a good job. They were so certain that they like, they were like, well, you'll get a football scholarship. And it's like, I'm not that good at football, but I'm really good at standardized tests. How do you not understand that? And they just like, didn't get it. 
you know so 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 the 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 law thing i mean it sounded like at some point they they kind of sort of came around to that i mean at, at least at least to 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 the degree that they were disappointed when you didn't fully well, pursue it no i mean when i went to like when i started getting like stuff from colleges that were very enthusiastic about me um they like started to get that I was going to go to college I was going to get a scholarship and that was going to be fine. And then they started getting more enthusiastic about Mm. that. Um, And then when I was, there's another weird thing about being gay that isn't universal. I mean, but you, I did not have an adolescence in the way that most people do. Like I didn't rebel against them because Mm -hmm. what was I going to rebel about? And it's always funny. It sounds like you had plenty of opportunity to. Yeah. Um, I, but I was just trying to be good and make them like me. And I think also part of it was me sort of fundamentally understanding that I was, uh, broken and wrong and was trying to make up for that by like being the best thing I could be. Um, and so it wasn't until, so like when I was, when I was in my last year at Berkeley, I said to my mom, like, I don't want to go to law school. I would like to just get a job and figure out what I want. And she was just like, no, you have to go to law school. And I didn't understand disobeying them. Like if I made, if I made significant changes in the way I had my hair cut, I ran it past my parents until I was in law school. But they were, and, and this makes sense. I mean, you know, it's 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 something I think a lot of us take for granted. But you know, it makes sense that that uh, as working class people, that they would see um, any form of higher education as being um, a trade school in a sense, right? Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. My dad once said that to me. He was like, "We're having a conversation about like what if you what if you won the lottery?" And I was like, "I would just stay in college forever." And he was like. I don't understand that. Why would you yeah. be going if you weren't, weren't learning, learning to do a thing? Yeah. And he he didn't get it. And one of the things that I didn't figure out until later was just that my parents, the economy of my town is run on unwanted pregnancies is what I said. But like, it basically comes down to people get to the end of high school or immediately after high school they fuck somebody and yeah. they get them pregnant and then you have to get a job so you can provide for that child and, yeah. and keep this whole thing going. And as somebody who, which is what my parents did. Um, and th- so they like, that's what people did until the fifties. That's what everybody ex- did. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And they, uh, a marker that indicated me as an adult that they understand has still not happened. Like, my sister got married, mm, yeah. she had a kid, yeah. she got divorced, she got married again. These are all things that make her un- them understand that, like, she has sovereignty or things that she has control over, but nothing that I have done is meaningful to them because they just don't understand it. Like, I have a law degree, what does that mean, you know? I mean, this, this, is, this is also something that, that, uh, that, that I've been thinking about a lot lately is... Um, how, how we gauge success for ourselves, especially when we put ourselves in positions where, um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm certainly like this. You're, I think you're definitely like this given what you do and who you're around where, you know, I mean, naturally, if you surround yourself by really talented, capable people, a lot of your friends are going to do really well. And it's going to be hard not to 
judge yourself right by, by their successes and I, i'm just i'm wondering um if you're better at gauging your own success than say your parents are absolutely the thing yeah. is is like and they like they were really struck by like me being on tv and stuff like that and i think it's so funny i think the thing that impacted them most was when they came to see me at the warfield in san francisco mm-hmm. chelsea would always make sure that we stay like when we were on tour with comedians at Chelsea lately, we always stayed at really, really nice hotels. And I was in a suite at the Ritz in San Francisco and they came and they saw where I was staying (laughs) and they were just sort of like, I think that that impacted them a lot. And I, I bitch about them a lot, but one, when I left Chelsea lately, there was like shit got rough and I was wondering whether when my mom was going to say, all right, that was a fun lark. It's time for you to yeah. go to be a, go be a lawyer now. Yeah. And she didn't. And I have to appreciate that. Like, I really have to appreciate that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's nice about being me or, or just my journey is, have you read any Joan Didion? Have you read Joan Didion? Yeah, yeah, of course. Have yeah. you read on self-respect? Uh, it's an was, it's an essay from Slouching Towards Bethlehem. I have, yeah. Okay. It's been a while. Uh, it's super fucking awesome. Yeah. Uh, and it's just basically her sort of saying respect is about self-respect is about fundamentally understanding that everything worth having has a cost. Yeah. And being in the same room with that, and I like that uh, not being. Many of the things that have been hard for me have meant that I have had to decide for myself how much I was going to value myself. And um, I think it's the reason that gay guys and black women get along because you live in a world that is telling you, you don't really matter. Mm. And you can accept that. And a lot of people do. And you just don't hear from them. But you, the ones you hear from are the ones who have decided to say, no, I'll be the judge of this. I'll make, I'll make this choice for myself. And those people are terrifying because if you live in a world that is, is bolstering you a little bit more, is like keeping you going, when it stops doing that, a lot of those people don't know how to keep going. And I'll definitely hit rough patches and I'll definitely like get down or depressed and have something like I had a, a career thing in the past week that really sort of got me into a like a, yeah. one of those places like you know should I even be doing this blah 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 and it's just like shut up and keep going shut up and keep going like there's I don't have to take care of anybody else I'm only doing this for my own benefit and I understand it, that I live in a world that really doesn't understand the space that it has for me mm. in a, a lot of ways. Like there aren't that many successful gay male stand-up comics. Um, and I'm not, and even within that, I'm not bowling down the middle. One of the things I said on, on that Hardwick podcast, cause I got really down in the dumps on that Hardwick podcast. That was a lot of rawness and I feel self-conscious about that, but was like, maybe I'm one too many adjectives. Like, maybe I am, but like, this is me. Yeah. This is the only me I'm going to be. And it's such a lovely, specific thing that, you know, I, I, I can't, can't imagine what it's like to be somebody who feels boring or expected, you know? I, yeah. I, yeah. I wonder how much boring people actually 
think about how boring they are. I imagine not that much. I imagine that's sort of what makes them boring. But they watch the TV and they read yeah, yeah. the stuff that we make for them. Well, yeah, and and, and um, this idea of this idea of sort of like getting out there and telling people you matter. I mean, there's no more literal manifestation of that than what you do of of actually going on stage and telling people about yourself. And, you know, actually telling telling your story. I mean, that's like the rawest version of that, right? It's yeah. Um, it's the it's the best kind of art. I love it a lot. Um, Emily Heller, who is a stand up comedian, she once said like that it was the most diverse form of art that she had ever experienced. And that seems counterintuitive to people who are like, it's mostly just white dudes. Yeah, yeah but everybody who gets up there, it's not like some writer is defining your path for you. It's not like some director or anybody else is telling you what to do. You get, for those five or seven minutes, you're in charge. It's all you. And that can be sort of overwhelming. I can get into a place of, how many straight guys want to watch me for an hour? And, you know, uh, I don't tour. Like, I... Like, (laughs) I... I've been on TV a lot. Like, I am at a level of success where most of my peers tour. And I think that most... Stand-up agents, including my own, have an attitude of who really wants to watch, you know, who wants to watch that faggot for an hour. Um, And it's lovely to go on the occasions when I do get to headline somewhere and be reminded like, oh, no, that's not true. Like that I've at least been doing this long enough that I've that I figured out figured it out. And also the the world has changed a lot in the 10 years that I've been doing stand up. Um, And it's a, a better, nicer, more wonderful place. People bitching about how terrible things have gotten, that is the, like, I hate to use the word privilege. I don't hate to use the word privilege. It's what a, what a lovely privilege to get to mourn the, the loss of things that you love. Because I'm so much happier to live in 2015 than I was to live in 1993 or 2005. This is a better place. I'm excited. If only California could get some more water. Um, but, you know, it, it really is... Um, it's love like I like writing for TV shows mm-hmm. and I like getting to act and things like that and those are very fun but like this thing is just the best I love it so much stand up stand up yeah. because I get to decide and I get to rise and fall on, yeah. my, on my own skills and for your moments like for the time that you're on that stage you're really getting to set the agenda and like a lot of people who aren't white guys heterosexual white guys really can try to echo what the heterosexual white guys do so that Mm. they don't seem that disruptive Mm. um and i think i get so much benefit from the disruption (laughs) yeah of 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 not 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 having a model of what of what the right thing of what the right thing is to do yeah yeah um i i uh I did want to talk about the the law thing a little bit because that's, okay. that's that that's that's fascinating to me. Um, was were you interested in it? Absolutely, it's a very You're, common okay. it's a very common thing for uh, a, a lot of lawyers end up becoming stand up comedians, and a fair number of them have killed themselves. Um, well, just Geraldo, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I I I always liked the social sciences and the humanities, which was interesting for my parents because they really understood book learning in sense, in the sense of like technical knowledge. Hmm. Um, but I always liked social sciences and the humanities. 
Um, and I wanted to go to grad school and then I did not get the grades to go to grad school, but I knew that I would do well on the LSATs. So I took the LSATs and being a lawyer seemed like the kind of respectable indoor job that I would like and, you know, could make me happy. Um, because at, at that point in time, I was just trying to avoid having to work construction. It also, it also, um, sort of splits a line in an interesting way between the humanities and actual and, and technical reading. Right. right. I mean, the law is, it, 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 it's a technical book. It is. And that was my first year of law school was the very difficult process yeah. of me realizing I wasn't in college anymore. I was somewhere basically that we weren't there to talk about the implications of anything. We were there to say, um, you know, uh, Brittany is 17 years old. The age of consent yeah. for contractual purposes in the state of Minnesota is 18 years old. It, like, there's just this structure to writing about things that yeah. you need to do at all times. And I eventually figured that out. Um, but I, I love the law. Like, I, I really, it's what an expensive and time-consuming hobby those three years created for me and hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, I had a scholarship, so I was just paying for myself to exist, but that was still a lot of money. Um, But uh, A, for comedy purposes, it really enabled me to look at a fact pattern, break it down, and reassemble the facts in the way that were most advantageous to my Mm. joke. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was really useful. Um, and it also sort of like trained me to construct arguments very quickly, which so frequently the, the most satisfying work for me that I do is crowd. Like I really like doing crowd work I re- or I really like responding to the joke of somebody who went up not long before me. Yeah. And people always enjoy that because they know that it's being made fresh for them right at their table. Yeah. Um, but I love that. And learning to think quickly and trust myself to talk uh, like and explain it. I think law school helped me with immeasurably, um, and then it just systematized my thoughts in a way that are very, very nice. Like I, um, like I still really enjoy reading Supreme Court decisions about the stuff that matters to me. I still enjoy sort of like looking at legal problems and analyzing them and figuring them out because. It does. It is a field that really refreshes, uh, rewards fresh ways of of approaching things. But has has it always been something that's just sort of been there in a in, in sort of a just in case sense that you know this is the thing that you would fall. At what, I guess I guess the better question is at what point did it stop being the thing that you could potentially still fall back on? That's interesting. It really was when I left Chelsea lately because that was sort of the first point in time. I had money saved, but um, it was a rough relationship with her. And then my the agents and managers that I had at that time were sort of not... They did a different thing from what I do. Mm-hmm. They weren't really... They weren't stand-up agents or managers. They weren't comedian agents or managers. They were like writing agents and managers. Because nobody who was related with stand-up was particularly interested in me. Uh, because they didn't, because there was not a me-shaped hole in the stand-up industry. Um, and so I've had to spend a lot of time just pushing my way through walls. But I'm big. I'm capable of that. Um, and that was sort of the point in time where I was like, oh, do I keep with this thing? And then I sort of like had to pick myself up and start getting jobs. And I was in this, this panicked 
place of going from writing job to writing job, always terrified. And then finally my friend Ali Wong, like a year and a half or two after that was like, guy, you always get jobs. And it was just like, it was important for me to be just like, Oh, I always get jobs. And so, uh, that doesn't mean I should stop doing the things that I need to do to get the next job, but it does mean not so much panic is required. Um, and that was a, a good and interesting learning point. But at this point in time, I have not done continuing legal education. So I would have to retake the bar to go be a lawyer. And the law has changed. Yeah. Like I, <laughs> this is me. There's, uh, so there are two elements of any bar exam. There are essays and then there is a um, multiple choice mm-hmm. exam. So recently I just took a hundred question multiple choice exam to see how I would do. <laughs> And I did all right. Let's yeah. be honest. But things had changed. The law had changed yeah. about a significant number of things. And I was answering the way that I had learned them and not the way that they are now. And that was like weird. You're, you're still, I appreciate that you're still, you're, you're hustling. I mean, you know, this is the, the reason why this happened is because you said you went on Twitter and said, I am in New York now. Please tell me all of the podcasts I could possibly get on. Well, I mean, that's a really interesting thing because... I've I, not seen that before, too, by the way. Which in, is... in entertainment, um, it's hard because you don't want to seem desperate. Yeah. And, like, there are some people who just say, like, I'm going to New York. Book me for your show. And, like, that's a little bit tacky and that's a little bit irresponsible. But I was just... I was not expecting to have to come to New York for this job. So like a couple of months ago, I was really planning towards doing shit like this in LA yeah. where I just know the lay of the land a lot better. Yeah. Um, and Once I you get into that earwolf vein. You're good for life, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I was doing that. And the thing is, is, um, you know, there are many things that I'm whining about. There are many things that I'm negative about, but I do really appreciate that the friends that I have and the people I know and I, I try as hard as I can to like be be a good person maybe not generally but at least within this community you know um, and so at, at that point I was just sort of like uh, I have all of this stuff to take care of and I have three or four weeks to sort of like get hustling on this and I got to like I could let this thing I could let this album sort of like land without much push behind it and let that be that but no i mean i put time and money and effort into making it happen um i need to do everything i can to to make that better that was a really one of the really important lessons that i learned in sort of entertainment because you want every you want things to come to you because you're talented and because you're good at what you do. But then I spent some good long years being talented and good at what I did without necessarily like having benefits yeah. come from it. And then there came at the point in time when I realized there's nothing wrong with just nudging. There's nothing wrong with just asking, with just pushing. Um, and you know, I don't want to be terrible. There's actually a thing in the past couple of weeks that I really should have done more to sort of like make happen. And I didn't. Uh, and, and that's bad, but like, you know, just realizing that like, I know the game enough now to sort of like push it along. I am no naive child. 
um, and there's nobody who's begging to come help me. So, um, and that's that's unduly negative. The the lovely thing is, is sometimes to be helped, you just have to ask. Yeah. Sometimes to be helped, you just have to ask. Yeah. And I, you know, that was the thing of, I, I posted that on Twitter. I felt a little bit self-conscious about it. And then the number of people who came forward to be so deliciously helpful people who are just waiting to help people right life, right and waiting for a way to to engage with you in some in some fashion and and there are also things that you can understand as a type of help that other people just understand yeah. is breathing um my my friend matt who has like a master's degree in acting and stuff like that i needed help with an audition and i was it is a thing that i feel very for a number of reasons last week, I felt uncomfortable about it. And he was just able to like breeze in, know what he was doing and, and be so, so helpful to me and was just so like, Oh no, this isn't even a thing. Or I sometimes like friends are doing a late night or or, or doing like at midnight or something yeah. like that. And like, they just need some jokes or something. And that is the thing that is not hard for me. If I have like, if I have time, it's not even a thing. It's a thing that I enjoy, yeah. you know? Um, and, and podcasting is one of those things. Cause like I've been a guest on many podcasts and I've also like, uh, had a podcast or two. And that thing of like booking is hard and sometimes you just need somebody to say, "Hey, I would love to do your show, and I will be very flexible about when I can get there." The thing that the thing that you you have to learn at some point, and it's and it's always a hard learned lesson, is that you know if if you get to a certain point, if you achieve a certain amount of success, uh, unless people hear something otherwise, they just assume that you're fine. Yes, that's a really that's a really important thing. Um, that was basically one of the the big lessons I learned was like because I I had been successful in so many ways on Chelsea lately. Yeah. Uh, oh, you're a big shot, hot shot TV star now. Exactly, yeah. and that I did sort of need to be more articulate about saying I need a job yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Um, and also, I have some friends who are who get into this very frustrated place of like why does nobody ever try to help me or something like that? And they are universally the people who are the most fucking competent. Like they are people who are just exuding like self possession. Mm -hmm. And it is just sort of like, you need to people to know that there is an opening or that you have a need or, or something like that. Something that I, that, that I have to really actively work against because my, natural inclination when I get depressed when something bad happens is just to withdraw which is the opposite of what you should do I, I, I tend to sort of shut myself off I um, so I came out in the summer in between my first and second year of law school and then I had my first crush on a boy I'd never had sort of like feelings for a boy and my parents were not being great uh, in, and I, in college or in, in law school, but but that the, your first crush in, in law school in law school you were a late bloomer. I, yeah, I well the thing is is every gay guy is and I don't know how gay women work, but every gay guy is turning off their emotions in some way. Like they are turning off their emotions in one way or another. And the way that I would argue that every straight guy is also turning off their emotions, right? And I just had in ignoring my sexuality 
I had just never had sort of like real emotional feelings for someone. Mm-hmm. I would have a sexual preoccupation with yeah, someone, yeah. but it was never squishy, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it did. The and, violins never played. Right. Yeah. And then the violins played. And I did, like, I was on this 14-year-old girl roller coaster that I had never been prepared for. Uh-huh. And also as an adult man, and most people didn't want to hear hear about it. Those fucking they girls. didn't want to read your poetry? Yes. The girls in law school were, I would not be alive without them. You know, they were there and remembered what things were like and were wonderful. But basically, the boy who was my crush was just kind of mean to me, and I, like, crashed hard. And Gay guy or straight guy? Great gay guy. Um, And I don't really get crushes on... I mean, I kind of do. But that really and I had had sort of like depressions before I'd had bad times but they had not been as gigantic as this and the process of learning to pick my feet up and just start moving yeah. forward and it did take drugs like it wasn't I I ended up going on Prozac and like that allowed me to make the horrible things small enough to be able to just start moving forward and it was so instructive to me and I've had times that were hard crashes since then but remembering what it's like to just pick up your feet and start moving forward and that you're allowed to ask people for help. Like my, like my law school professors were all so great about understanding, except for the one lady who was my mentor who got in my face and was like, snap to it. You don't get to miss class anymore. So how did these, how did these things line up? I mean, it sounds like they happened right around the same time, but, but you know, you learning this, this lesson of, of, not withdrawing into yourself and you going out on stage and talking about your life. I mean, they, they sound like they, I, they're, they're pretty interconnected. Absolutely. Like the, um, the, the fundamental message that like both coming out and the depress and the depression gave me was like, Oh, you ha- like, you only have one life to live mm-hmm. and you have to like, keep yourself alive like that was it was an interesting thing of just sort of realizing i have to keep myself alive so i must live a life that is rewarding and satisfying enough to keep me going like because i was raised by people who were poor and hardworking, there was a lot of you know there was a lot of fear of pleasure and a lot of alienation from pleasure um that i think is is hard and i think that my parents inability to just sort of like let themselves be happy is a, is a problem. It's just so funny. You're, you're describing fundamentalism with everything except the church. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it's the, they're from Arkansas. Yeah. Both of them are from Arkansas and they were uh, Jews in Arkansas. They're Jews in Arkansas. Oh. Um, most of them I was related to before the Walmart money started bringing everybody in. Um, but like it, it was very, and hedonic and I sort of like yeah. reached that place where I realized yeah. that among the other things that I needed to do like I needed to pay my bills but I also needed to make sure that I was okay <laughs> like that taking care of myself was a thing that I needed to do and that that will help me pay my bills yeah. and all of that stuff and you know divorcing yourself from what is expected of you is such a valuable thing it's a rough it's a rough change, but like coming to the point of I'm not going to be what my mom wants me to be. What do I want me to be? And like that, and and 
And I started stand-up, and I really thought I was going to be a hobbyist. I really thought... And, like, the other the other guys who started at the same time as me were all, like, early 20s straight guys and, like, who had parents who were rich enough to kind of support yeah. them, maybe. And, like, I really thought, well, they'll get it. They'll get to go be real stand-ups, and I'll just sort of do this. I'll be a lawyer who does this on the side or whatever. And that didn't happen. And I'm proud of myself. <laughs> um, and they're... They're, they, are all doing fine. The yeah. thing is, is they're, they're but, but are they stand-ups? Everybody, yeah, everybody. Oh, are? Oh, okay, okay. Everybody has so good careers. They were really funny guys. Yeah. Like they were really funny guys, uh, and some of them are doing really well, and some of them are doing okay. But everybody yeah. has a, a good, right. solid career. But I just thought I would not get to do that. The better story would have been they all crashed and burned, and you were the, the sole survivor. No, they're lovely human yeah. beings, but it was just sort of. So much of it was that skill of just understanding that I don't forget it. I'll forget it in such significant ways. But when I get to a place of like, I don't know what to do, just sort of like going back to fundamentals and focusing on the stuff that I can control and trying to um, like make that work. Because like stand up will always, no one can take stand up away from me. No one can ever take stand up away from me. So that is magical and beautiful, and so much has come out of that to me. That, like, um, I, I talked on Hardwick's show about how when I was like at a very dark place professionally, I just started working on this show idea that I had, and then I loved it so much, and good things have come out of it. But more than anything else, is just sort of like uh, the the cycle I get out of loving something and putting my energy into something yeah. that I love and am proud of. That is. A benefit and a reward as much as a paycheck. That's an. I mean, that, yeah. That's uh, that's another thing. I, I think I need to get better at. I was talking to to a comedian about this recently about all of the, um, uh, all, like all the pilots that he's written. You know, he 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 pulled out a stack of like five or six pilots, and I was just like, how is, how is every single one of those not a, just a total life crushing, heartbreaking moment that you've poured this much of your life into it? Like, how how do you how do you learn to move on from there? But that's. If, if you can if you can grasp that lesson um, as cliche as it, it sounds but if, if, if you can really uh, take stock in the creation of the project and all of the lessons that that taught you then that's how you move on if, if you know if again this is like a fortune cookie but 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 if the reward is in in the creation of the thing and not what other thing might come out of it. Have you ever seen Babette's Feast? No, I have no idea what that is. I know, is that like Bebe's Kids? No. Okay. Similar. Uh, Babette's Feast is a movie that I can watch at any point in time. It's one of those magical movies, mm-hmm. along with like Monsoon Wedding and Mrs. Doubtfire. And I don't love Mrs. Doubtfire. No. I could just watch it I at any point in time. I love Mrs. Doubtfire, but it's a comfort movie. <laughs> yes. Okay. So Babette's Feast. It's a Danish movie. Okay. Uh, it's based on a short story by that lady that Out of Africa is based on. Okay. So here's the premise. It's going to sound real exciting to you. Like mm-hmm. you're going to say this is so far, a so good, good movie. Uh, these two super Lutheran ladies live in a religious commune that their dad founded, and they both had sort of like run-ins with love when they were young. But they gave up their run-ins with yeah. love to just be focused on their dad's work and this religious community. When they are in like their fifties, a French lady shows up and is like the opera singer who used to be in love with you told me I should come here I was fleeing the Prussians in Paris 
Um, and she stays with them and works a lot with... A backstory. Yes. It's mostly... Look, the climax <laughs> is going to be... Uh, and then she works for them for 10 years. Then she wins the lottery. And then she makes dinner for them. She uses the proceeds from her lottery winnings to make dinner for them. And you find out that she was... Spoiler. But this movie came out 30 years ago. Mm. Uh, and is in Danish. Is in Danish. Uh, and French. Uh, she explains to them or like that she was a chef at like a really fancy well, she doesn't explain it to him they just figured it out she was a fancy a chef at a super fancy hotel in paris and like she's been making them their stupid bread soup and like salt fish for yeah. 15 years but this is the thing that i do and living in this world with these people that she loved she just wanted to do the thing that she does and it um <laughs> it ends with two magnificent lines um, one is saying that the soul of the artist cries out, um, like in any situation, but the soul of the artist cries out, let me give my utmost. And then like the, the Danish ladies figure out that she has spent all of her money on this ridiculous meal. And they're like, but you're poor now. And then she says, an artist is never poor. And it is the strongest, like the, her delivery is so amazing. Like, and it just, and look, (laughs) I try to make a good income. I, we all have to deal with practicalities and all of those things. But when you're getting sad about not having this or not having that, you can just go back to a place of an artist is never poor. And like, I love that. And it keeps me going. There you go. That was Guy Branham, the wonderful Guy Branham being, being generally wonderful on the show. Uh, thanks so much to him for taking the time to do that. Uh, thanks to, thanks to Gabriel on Twitter that, uh, believe it or not, that was our first big Twitter get in the history of the show. Guy, uh, guy had just recently moved out to New York and, uh, sort of, sort of sent the feelers out asking which of our, our many fine podcasts he should be on to promote his new record. So obviously, uh, a huge upheaval. The, the Twitter audience spoke out, and everybody said he should come on to RAYL. So thanks so much to him for taking the time to do that. Um, clearly, clearly, he was a new New Yorker. Uh, you know, if, if he had been here for like uh, a, a month longer, even a couple of weeks longer, I think he would have thought better of actually coming all the way out to Astoria, Queens, to my apartment in Queens to, to, to have that conversation. But uh, I'm glad that we were able to get just in underwire on that one. I thought it was a really fascinating conversation. Um, you know, you hear a lot about how important it is to be truthful in comedy and how comedy comes from real places and it's about opening your your veins and all these other things but not a lot of people are able to really really kind of drop the truth hammer on your head the way the way the way guy does with his comedy so uh i really uh, really enjoyed that conversation uh if if you enjoyed it as well you should check out his new record it came out uh, just this week actually i think uh about a day or so ago it's called effable you can find that over on itunes uh i assume any other digital or other distribution network that carries fine uh, stand-up records as well uh he's got a podcast it's called pop rocket you can check that out over at the wonderful uh, max fun podcast network i highly recommend that and all of their other many fine shows uh thanks uh thanks so much to guy for taking the time to do that for getting on the train and, and walking quite a distance to be here uh thanks to you guys as always for listening if you liked what you heard you can send us feedback I guess if you didn't like what you heard, you could also send us feedback as well. But I, I like I like nice things. I'm a, 
a reasonably nice person who likes reasonably nice things. But whatever you want to send, you can send it over to rwildcast at gmail.com. Uh, follow us on, on, on Tumblr. That's rwildcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and the best place to get all of the RWL. Uh, related information you could ever want to to possibly know um like us over on facebook what else uh itunes is another place that has things including our podcast uh you can rate us over there you can uh, check out pop rocket you can check out other fine podcasts in the boing boing podcast network and other fine podcasts in the max fun podcast network uh thanks uh thanks as always to brian for editing this thing together um i uh I've, we've got a lot of good shows uh, coming up in the in the very near future. I think I've got uh, I, think I've, I think I've got about eight in the barrel at this point. So I'm gonna I don't know. Let's see what I can do about maybe 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 sneaking uh, one, or, one or two out in the meantime. Uh, but we will definitely be we'll definitely be back uh, next week with another episode, if not uh, if not a little bit sooner. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in, and uh, we will catch you in in a little while. <laughs>